before I became a coach, before I wrote the book, I was a career firefighter here in California. I got started doing that right out of high school. It was helping pay for college. And, you know, I got bit by the bug because uh, I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed being with the people. And uh, I felt like I was making a difference in a very hands-on way. But then there was that one call uh, in 2015 that I went on that where my post-traumatic stress injury came about. And that totally changed uh, the direction of my life. Instead of you know, riding off into the sunset with my retirement, I spent my first year of retirement still working on recovering. I mean, there were times I would think about something totally enjoyable, things that I used to enjoy doing, where it was uh, standing around a campfire with friends, and then my brain would uh, get hijacked, as it were, and show me how I could self-harm standing around that campfire. And, you know, it took a lot of work to get back to the point where I could start feeling a little bit of happiness and a little bit of joy, but I had to be very small doses because I couldn't handle uh, even the positive emotions that were coming about. Writing things down helps you check in with yourself. And I think it's a underutilized um, talent or skill that people kind of, no, I don't want to do that. But at some point in time, I made the decision that I would do whatever it took to get better. And so I kept a journal. I drank my water. Um, I quit drinking alcohol because I wanted to do anything and everything I could under my power to get better. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Linda Green. You are a certified high-performance coach, author, and speaker. And in addition, you're passionate about first responders and PTSD and PTSI. Linda, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Roger. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. And I, um, we, we connected on LinkedIn. I saw that you are a fellow author and yes. always intrigued because I do a lot of writing. I'd love to talk to authors and learn more about their story, not only the book itself, 
uh, that you've written, but the backstory and what makes you you and what makes you and your unique abilities help others in the world. So appreciate your time today. We're going to talk about a lot of important topics, but why don't we start by something that I know you are really interested in discussing. So the, uh, the backstory, as you say, before I became a coach, before I wrote the book, I was a career firefighter here in California. And I worked for the state uh, Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. It's a statewide fire agency. And uh, I got started doing that right out of high school. It was helping pay for college. And, you know, I got bit by the bug because <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed being with the people. And uh, I felt like I was making a difference in a very hands-on way. And so I turned from where I was struggling in college uh, because my original goal to be a veterinarian wasn't happening, uh, partly because I don't do well in science uh, topics. <laughs> um, but I excelled when I focused on fire uh, science classes and I started taking tests, and I eventually got on with the, the department full-time and spent the next 32 years of my life doing that. I worked my way up from firefighter all the way up to assistant chief by the time I retired at the end of 2016. And, you know, I made a lot of great friends. I did a lot of good work. But then there was that one call uh, in 2015 that I went on that where my post-traumatic stress injury came about and that totally changed uh, the direction of my life instead of you know riding off into the sunset with my retirement I spent my first year of retirement still working on recovering you know therapy almost every week sometimes twice a week um, just trying to find my way back to me again and during that uh, fire back in 2015 while I was standing there watching basically entire communities getting burned up by this wildland fire being driven by 70 mile an hour winds. I felt like there was a book, a story to be told. And this is like two o'clock in the morning and I felt kind of foolish thinking that at the time. I quit thinking about it until a few weeks later, somebody came up to me with an idea for a book. <laughs> and, uh, and the book I wrote has nothing to do with those earlier conversations other than it tells the story of the fire because I was able to backtrack to the moment when I felt like that's when my injury happened. And then um, it was one of those things. I just happened to start journaling shortly after that fire, trying to figure things out in my own brain. And that became pretty much the backbone of this book, all those journal entries over the next couple of years. Um, and I used those because in their own way, they were showing what the symptoms and how they were showing up in my life, whether it's the anger or the insecurity or not feeling worthless or no feeling worthless and, um, and a wide range of emotions in between, but the definite lack of joy and happiness that people, people thrive on. And I wasn't thriving because I had been blocked from feeling those type of emotions. Actually, I've been blocked from feeling any type of emotion for almost a year and a half. I was so numb. Um, and this was because of the effects of that day, because of the the, tra the trauma that occurred uh, 
that day with the fire? And, and the after effects, because what happens with post-traumatic stress, your amygdala gets hypersensitive to everything and it starts thinking everything is a threat. And after a while, you just start self-numbing yourself because you don't want to feel that constant high level of anxiety that PTS brings about. And it became, in a way, easier to not think at all, not feel at all, as a mode of self-protection. And, I mean, there were times I would think about something totally enjoyable, things that I used to enjoy doing, where it was uh, standing around a campfire with friends, and then my brain would uh, get hijacked, as it were, and show me how I could self-harm standing around that campfire. Or I'd be at the lake and my brain would go into hyperdrive, here's how I can show you how you can self-harm just being at the lake. And I had to shut my brain down. So I can't think about this stuff anymore because it was so harmful. And, you know, it took a lot of work to get back to the point where I could start feeling a little bit of happiness and a little bit of joy, but it had to be very small doses because I couldn't handle uh, even the positive emotions that were coming about. So that, that's, I think that's the thing that's not really understood uh, by people that don't, and I've never dealt with post-traumatic stress, is they don't understand why people can't just get over it. And like snap out of it, you know, that was years ago or whatever. Um, it's time to move on. You know, it's like, trust me, we would all love to move on, but we have to, you know, retrain our brain to think more along the lines of, you know, yes, there's bad stuff going on in the world, but it's not 24-7. It's every now and then. So we can get back to functioning in the world as we should be. And that's interesting because that's the first I've heard of being able to control actually the positive input as much as, as, as the negative, right? So you're saying uh, someone going through PTS, you, you, you can't take in a lot of positive effects as well. It has to be in smaller doses. Yeah, when you're when you're so sensitive to any type of emotional input, uh, it it seems unnatural to be able to laugh. Hmm. It seems unnatural to just enjoy the sunset because your body is so hypersensitive to the stress hormones, and even in a in a moment of relative bliss it doesn't last long enough to allow the stress hormones to come back down and so you can stay there and it's like oh you know I feel pretty good right now and a lot of people will say that and we just had this conversation the other day with some friends over coffee um, a lot of them think oh I'm having a good day and they're waiting for the other shoe to drop to get back into the negative and I remember there was one time I was in my garden and I actually felt happy and I recognized that, oh, this is what happiness feels like. And 
by then I had, I was a little further along in my recovery. Instead of, you know, waiting for the sky to fall, I turned and made a pivot on that and said, Hey, this is a nice feeling. I remember this and I want more of this. What was I doing just before and can I replicate it? And that's how I started thinking. And this is probably two years after the injury, but it took me that long to get to that point where I was looking forward to feeling happy again because it was the first time in two years my brain hadn't hijacked the moment and take me back into the darkness. And it's like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> and I want more of it. And for people that may be experiencing PTS, but have not been diagnosed or are not getting any type of treatment, what do you recommend if they have a feeling or if they're just have some symptoms um, that may be, you know, leading to this? I would say, I would say this because this happens an awful lot. It's hard finding a therapist that can help with post-traumatic stress because there are certain things to do when somebody is trying to uh, return from a trauma of any type. But for me, what helped was keeping a journal because that's how you can start tracking your symptoms in more of a real-time uh, manner. Because a lot of people, um, myself included, before I really got consistent with my journaling, I was having nightmares uh, within weeks of, of the fire. And although I can remember what the nightmares were, I never wrote them down. And by the time I got into therapy and we started talking about nightmares, I had a vague idea what some of them were, but I couldn't put them into context other than I definitely re remember the first one because it was such a, a bad dream. Um, but, you know, the nightmares, and you may think it's counterproductive to actually write some of that down, but you're trying to figure these things out, and sometimes you misinterpret what a dream actually means, and I know my first nightmare, uh, what I thought had happened isn't what was showing up by the time I started working with a therapist who had some skill in interpreting dreams um, and it ended up being a whole different scenario. Uh, once we had that discussion, um, you know, I worked with a therapist who told me I could change the outcome of my dreams. And at first I didn't believe her until she kept prompting me and reminding me so you can change the outcome. And were you able to do it? Yeah, I was. You know, it's like the boogeyman was coming out of the corner one night, and it's like, no, not tonight. I would actually like to sleep. And the boogeyman kind of paused and kind of, okay, fine, and went back in the corner. You know, it's like, that was pretty cool. <laughs> you know, so, <clears throat> you know, it, it's things like that. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I had night terrors, basically just wake up wide awake, heart pounding, drenched in sweat. I had a lot of those too, but I wasn't keeping track of them. And, and because I wasn't keeping track of them, I wasn't talking about them in therapy. And I think if I had been talking about some of the symptoms and how they were showing up a little bit sooner, I might have been diagnosed sooner. Um, instead, I went through several months of uh, therapy for basically generalized anxiety, which was definitely true. And I was actually feeling better by uh, the following spring 
but there were some things I had never brought up in therapy, so we hadn't addressed them. And, uh, and that's probably one of my regrets. If I had been a little bit more honest with my therapist sooner, would I have been diagnosed sooner than getting the more um, definitive care I needed? So that, that's one of those things that a lot of people with PTS, especially in first responders, early on, they'll, you know, it's like denial. It's like, nope, nothing happened. I'm good. And I don't want to talk about it. And they just go on. And that's okay to a point. But at some time, you have to figure out how is this impacting me? It's lack of sleep. And that's actually what drove me to my doctor to begin with was a horrible insomnia. I was lucky to get six hours of sleep like once a week just because I was physically exhausted the rest of the nights, two to three hours of sleep because of nightmares, night terrors, and all that. And I went to get a sleeping pill. Uh, I had a pretty smart doctor. She referred me to a therapist. <laughs> and I, I'm grateful to this day that she did that. But, um, but I was in so much denial I didn't even tell my primary doctor that I was having nightmares, but uh, we talked about a lot of other things that were going on, and I definitely had a lot of anxiety. Um, but it's like writing things down helps you check in with yourself, and I think it's a underutilized um, talent or skill that people kind of no, I don't want to do that, but at some point in time, I made the decision that I would do whatever it took to get better. And so I kept a journal. I drank my water. Um, I quit drinking alcohol because I wanted to do anything and everything I could under my power to get better. And that included talking to the therapist, sometimes twice a week. It included uh, EMDR, which is which can be a really difficult thing to do early on in, in the treatment process because it's such a focused treatment process, very specific to the trauma, whereas talk therapy can be more broad and may not go as deep, but EMDR is very focused. And, uh, but you know, those are the type of things that go on. And I think that for me, that journal was the foundational piece of my recovery because now I can go back. Even when I was writing a book, I put a lot of my journal entries into the book. And as I was transcribing it all, it's like, Oh, this still has a little power over me, you know, cause I could physically feel it and other sections. Oh, we've talked about that enough. I'm not feeling anything anymore. By the time I got done editing the book, like five different times, pretty much I had resolved everything that those first two or three years uh, had impacted me. But um, it, it was like that journaling is powerful because it gets it out of your brain onto a piece of paper where you can go back and look at it in the light of day in a more objective manner than when you're in the moment. Well said. I'm, I'm really happy that you spent some time on that talking about the importance of, of journaling and I could see certainly see why um, building resilience I know that's something that's also important to you can you talk about that 
Okay, so re resilience, uh, especially in the world of first responders right now, or areas that have been hit by natural disasters, large-scale ones, um, in a way it's a buzzword, but in reality it's how we should be living our lives anyhow. As social creatures, part of resilience and developing it is developing a social network of people you can go talk to uh, when you have bad things happen in your life. You know, it's having uh, a spiritual practice that you can talk to the universe when you're going through a bad time in life. It's having an exercise routine that you can do regardless because that helps moderate, you know, the stress hormones. It's having a good nutritional profile so your body's getting the micronutrients that it needs to deal with stress as opposed to eating a ton of fast food or junk food, which does nothing for your body other than preserve it because of all the chemicals are in it. Um, you know, drinking water versus alcohol. You know, alcohol will help numb the pain temporarily. It also dehydrates you. It uh, messes with your sleep. It disrupts your sleep cycle. So resilience is all about developing a healthy lifestyle that you can use in good times and in bad. And it's, it's a skill set. And people don't think of it that way, but basically that's what it is. You're developing the skills to cope with life, whether it's a good day or a bad day. And the more you develop it, the deeper you can tap into it when it gets really bad. And um, so it's more of a future-oriented outcome. But what you do today to develop resilience you may not see the impact of it for 20 years when all of a sudden life gets, you know, really negative, but it's still a good practice because it makes you feel good. You know, when you exercise, you feel good. When you go for a walk, you feel good. When you eat healthy, you feel good. And it is uh, the ultimate form of self-love is the process of developing resilience. If you think of it that way. And again, I've uh, never heard it positioned in such a way that you just outlined. So I, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, when I hear about resilience, I'm not thinking of any of the things you talked about. So it's, 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 you've just opened up a new concept and a new idea for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners. So thank you for that. Oh, you're uh, welcome. Yeah. Is, is, do you find, and I'm sure this, I, I would assume that these are some of the things you're teaching with your, with your coaching. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. And do you find that because you went through your own post-traumatic stress and have worked so hard to find all the possible methods to help yourself, including, like you said, um, drinking more water and getting rid of alcohol, um, the sleep, everything that you outlined, do you feel that puts you at an advantage um, to coach others on the best way to, to build resilience? 
you know, for me, uh, my under my understanding of resilience is relatively fresh because, you know, I look at what other trainers are talking about when they talk about resilience and they're not always talk, talking about the same thing. And, and so the curiosity part of me says, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but then when you mix it all up, you know, it's my own unique take on it. And um, it's like the nutrition piece. I never really dove into that until the last year or so. And that's because I started working with a nutritionist who has a degree in cellular biology. And, you know, he totally geeks out on how your body metabolizes what you eat. And he could care less about calories because they don't really matter. It's like your body needs protein, it needs carbohydrates, and it needs all these vitamins and minerals in a certain blend. And when you eat that way, then your body responds in a very happy manner. But I never really understood that till that was one of the last pieces I was trying to put back together was my physical health. And I needed to work on that. So every time I look at that resilience piece, you know, what I thought about two years ago and what I think about today are two different things because of the process I'm going through. I'm still learning it myself. And I used to, you know, kick myself a little bit because I thought, well, I got PTS because I didn't have like a spiritual practice, at least not much one until I read a book about a first responder who had responded on 9-11 to the Pennsylvania crash site highly spiritual, highly religious woman, and she still got PTS. And so that little aha moment, it's like, oh, whether or not I had a spiritual practice had nothing to do with it. It's a whole other process. Yeah, it's only right. one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like I had to look at the rest of my life. Where else was I doing okay and not? It's like I was doing okay with sleep. Um. Mm probably drinking, I don't know, I'm a binge drinker by, by habit, and but, you know, I've been sober for three years now, and my body physically is much happier with that, sure. <laughs> and, and so I'll probably never have another drink the rest of my life, but, you know, it's all these different pieces, because I was trying to find my way back to me, I started looking at all these different parts of my life and saying, was I doing okay there? Yes or no, scale of one to ten. Some of them were at seven, some of them were at three. And what can I do tomorrow to level up a little bit in that area of my life? So for me, meditation and journaling, that's part of my spiritual practice. Um, being in nature is part of my spiritual practice, but it also benefits my body because I'm moving, whether I'm kayaking or hiking. Uh, it, when I spend time with my family, I'm building my social network, making new friends. I made a lot of new friends through the coaching world, building my social network. Um, I've met podcasters like you and having conversations like this is helping me build my social network. Um, and it brings some joy into my life because I'm helping, hopefully helping people understand 
how disruptive post-traumatic stress is, you know, to somebody who's going through it. And yeah, so that's kind of all this thing of resilience is it, it's daily practices. It's what you do every week. It's what you do every month. It's what you do every year to recharge yourself and strengthen yourself because sooner or later, bad times are going to come. And it, it's a, uh, and you don't know if it's going to be like on a scale of one to 10, is it going to be a five, a negative five bad day, or is it going to become a negative 10 bad day? But your ability to bounce back, which is what resilience is, is being able to bounce back. The more tools you have in your toolbox to help when you go through bad times, you come back a little bit stronger, you come back a little bit faster, you come back a little bit wiser. So you can go help the next person. And do all these tools uh, lend itself to the routines of recovery? They do. Um, it's like I wanted to throw out uh, habits, but you know I'm trying to find my own term for it. But the routines, the habits. You know, for me, it started with journaling. That was my first habit. You know, it's like I would uh, challenge myself to write a gratitude before I went to bed. So I had a journal book right by the side of the bed. And after I got done doing everything else, brushing my teeth and all that, I'd go pick up that journal. And my goal for myself was three things I was grateful for that happened during the day. And uh, I could only talk about my husband once a week. <laughs> you know, I set some ground rules. So it forced me to start looking outside of myself uh, and it got to the point where I would go on gratitude hunts. So I'd go walk around town to see what I could find. You know, so it's like, oh, the squirrel is scampering through the tree or the birds are singing or somebody just did a random act of kindness for somebody. You know, I started looking for those type of things because what I wanted to do, and maybe I'm a little bit weird, but when I went, went to bed and put my head on my pillow, I wanted the last thing I thought about before I went to sleep was something positive. And that worked great until it didn't, but, um, but it was a cool thing to do. And, you know, so it's like that, that's for me, that's one of those habits is journaling. Another habit is having that gratitude practice. You know, whether you say a prayer at night, thanking the universe for having a wonderful day, for people in your, in your life or, you know, you got the promotion that day or, you know, dinner was awesome, whatever it was, just, it gives you that moment to remember that life is not always all bad. Life has good elements to it each and every day, but you got to look for it because otherwise you will get sucked in, into the, the negative world, which is really easy to do nowadays if you watch the news and that's all you watch, you're priming your brain for negativity and it doesn't need any help for that. So you have to be very purposeful in looking for the joy in the world and finding it in, in yourself. And so that gratitude practice is part of a routine of recovery, having a journaling practice. So if you're like awake at three o'clock in the morning and you're just tossing and turning, well, instead of doing that and getting mad at yourself for not being able to sleep, get up, make yourself a nice cup of tea, 
you know, and I did this a lot of times, nice little cuff of chamomile tea or whatever name brand, the tension tamers of the world. Have a nice cup of tea, grab your journal, and whatever is bugging you, just let it flow out on the paper. And then you can look at it, you know, in daylight a couple hours later and look at that and say, oh, okay, I understand that now. It just gets it off your chest without tearing up the house, without um, making it worse just because you're ruminating about whatever it is. You can't even think of what it is. If you just pick up a pen, piece of paper, and just let that emotion flow out of your brain through your body onto that piece of paper and discharge it so you can calm down enough to sleep. You know, these are all these little habits and routines that you have to develop when you're going through a recovery process to um, turn the corner and start building a positive lifestyle as opposed to being so locked into what's going on in your brain and overthinking it, which is really easy to do. Um, you start building these little habits and routines to break out of that overwhelm routine and start turning it into I have a little bit of control over my life. And this is one of the areas I can control. And it makes a total difference. Wow. And speaking of, you know, that positive mindset, how important is your energy that both that you take in and give out uh, to others and really everything around you? Energy is a lot of it. Definitely. Um, and that's where developing a gratitude practice can help boost your energy because the more you do gratitude, the more you recognize the goodness of the world and how you physically feel when you are in that moment, then that helps you r recognize that the negative energy you're feeling is not something you want. You want that positive energy. And so you start doing more and more things that take you towards the positive. And then another thing that helps, um, and it was one of the things that actually for me, it came a little late in the game for me, was being intentional in how I showed up for other people. And again, I was like, I got to a point I didn't want to just yell and scream at the house. I didn't want to yell and scream at the dog. I didn't want to yell and scream at my, at my family. So I had to turn to the journaling process just to get that anger out of me so that when my family was around, when the dog was around, they weren't getting my negativity because I put it onto a piece of paper so I could at least be neutral around them. Um, but then I finally came up with the system based on listening to another podcast where a guest was talking about um, having a code word for his family. So if he was having a bad day and he knew he was having a bad day, he could use his code word and the family would, you know, back off a little bit and just let him be. And that helped him have a little bit more control over what was going on. And also, helped him become more self-aware of how he was feeling at any given time. Now, what I ended up doing, because I had a little bit of a sense of humor by then, uh, and I read enough books about post-traumatic stress, 
to understand that the part of our brain that is uh, basically being hyperactive because of the post-traumatic stress is part of your reptilian brain. So I stopped by a toy store one day and I went looking for little toy dinosaurs, color-coded. So if I was having a good day, the green dinosaur would be on the fireplace mantle. Uh, If I was having a not-so-great day, the yellow one with the red tips on its spine would show up. And if I was having a really horrible day, the red one, the red one, the velociraptor would show up. Here's the thing I found doing that though, um, because I got much more aware when I got into the yellow, because I was aware when I was in that yellow zone, then I could go do things that would keep me from hitting the red. And once I started doing that system, I think I only, went red one more time after that wow because because i developed the awareness right now the funny thing is is my sister was living with us at the time and she came home from work uh obviously flustered and she wanted to know where the dinosaurs were at and they were in the back bedroom she came back out and put a red velociraptor on the mantle and went back into the back room my husband looked at me it's like are you going to go talk to her i said are you kidding me? Did you see that red thing that she just put on the mantle? Leave her alone. She, yeah, yeah, no. When she comes down, she'll come out. You know, but, uh, you know, and I thought it was just so funny. It's like now I rarely even put the dinosaurs out um, because having a bad day is so rare nowadays. But, uh, well, what you a know, great tool uh, yeah. to begin with, right? I think anyone could relate to that. And yeah. it's a good way. Uh, I feel, you know, just listening to you to help that self-awareness and then it becomes a habit as you've been talking about. And then mm-hmm. now you can handle it on its own, you know, without needing the, the dinosaurs. Right. Or whatever system you want to come up with. But, yeah. Yeah. but I think even if you're not dealing with post-traumatic stress, you know, people have bad days all the time, but if you have a family uh, you know, I think there's some responsibility to setting up a system to allow that to happen for everyone. Yeah, and giving permission to everybody in the family, right, to use that code. You know, because you know what, kids have bad days, and they may not have the language to articulate it, but they know when they're not feeling good, right, and come up with something simple like you know toy dinosaurs. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, Linda, let's talk about uh, your definition of injury versus disorder. What does that well, mean? Well, the, the injury versus disorder, um, and I didn't originate this thought. It's been going around for quite some time now, but it it's worthy of having the discussion because one of the challenges of having being diagnosed with a post-traumatic stress disorder, um, especially for like first responders and members of the military is that disorder word um, in its own way can be a bit of a stigma and it kind of puts the brakes on seeking help because I guarantee you, I was feeling, you know, hyper, I was feeling anxious, but if you had told me I, I had a disorder, um, my level of self-pride 
would have stopped me in, in my tracks saying, I don't have a disorder. I don't know what I have, but I don't have a disorder. So you can call anything else you want to. Um, but the argument's been going on for quite some time, and it actually came out of some military people who recognized that some soldiers were less likely to go seek help because they didn't want that disorder tag being put on them like, uh, you know, they were, you know, broken forever or anything. And post-traumatic stress isn't, isn't that way because a lot of people that technically meet post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, all the criteria for having that diagnosis self-regulate within a few months. You know, the science says, you know, up to 50% right around that number will self-regulate. They really don't need outside help. You know, it's, it's that part of time heals. And for a lot of people, time heals. It's the rest of the people that uh, are having all these symptoms don't recognize it in themselves. They may not have the social network. Um, but then when you get to trying to tell them, you know, you may have this and you should go get help for it. Again, talking about it as a disorder um, causes people to pause and, and because you know what, I'm not crazy, right? And they, they think that way. It's like when, we, when you phrase it as and present post-traumatic stress as an injury, you know, people understand the concept of an injury better. You know, you have an injury, so you go get treatment for it. Uh, you, yeah, and you get better. Uh, you may have a limp, but you'll get better. You may have, you know, like if you went and had a, a torn ACL and you had surgery for it and you went in for physical therapy for it and you know your knee will never be 100% again, but when you do the work to help it recover, it's fairly stable, you, you know, except for the very high-end athletes, a common person who, you know, tears an ACL on, on the ski slopes. They may end up with a limp for the rest of their life, but they're okay with that. They've done everything that they could in their power to go through the recovery process. So when you talk about post-traumatic stress as an injury, people are more likely to engage with their recovery process because when you set it up like against something like an ACL injury, yes, you may have a limp, but the rest of your life will be okay. The other part of the injury argument and why to call it an injury is they're showing more and more research that there is a permanent change to the brain structure because it's something that happened outside of you. Just like if you got hit by a car, you know, you can show on an x-ray, oh, you have a broken bone or not they're finding long-term changes to the brain structure, the hippocampus, the amygdala, um, that changes their size. And so if something outside of you causes a part of your body to change, to me that makes it an injury, right? And there was actually a report that came out about a year ago uh, the, the Veterans Administration had 25 years ago, roughly, scanned the brains of a lot of soldiers who had been diagnosed with PTSD. And they brought them back in 25 years later, scanned their brains again. And even though 
they had all been through a treatment process and were, you know, stable by all means, uh, their brain still showed a change in its structure. And that even included people as sub-threshold of PTS. So it is an injury because it show, it's showing up physically. You can see the change when you get the right type of brain scan. It will show that. Wow. Very enlightening on all these topics. Very important topics uh, that we're covering today. Uh, certainly appreciate it. We have, uh, we have a little bit of time left, and I definitely would love to get into your book. Um, what you learned, you know, writing your book, which is called uh, Solving the Post-Traumatic Stress Brain Injury Puzzle, a First Responder's GPS. By the way, long title, but uh, again, very relevant and very specific. So I'm sure there's, there's a certain segment of people that are wanting this book uh, and whether it's to heal or to help someone they know heal. Uh, can you talk about the learning process? Well, I touched on one part of it earlier um, on the show that in the process of transcribing all my notes, I found things I still needed to work on. By the time I got done editing the book, right before releasing it, I would go back through those same sections and, oh, this one doesn't have power over me anymore. So it was healing in its own way, writing the book. Um, the section where I talked about the fire, that was healing in its own way because of the research I did into it, because I was trying to get the timeline right for the first night of the fire. So not only did I have my own notes from that day because of my role on the fire, um, but I went through all the 911 recordings from that night and I went through all the radio traffic that had been recorded. Uh, I looked, found pictures on social media that showed one thing or another. And so in the process of putting together the puzzle of the fire, things started to make sense for me because there were a lot of things I was just ruminating about. It's like, how did that happen? How did I know? Now you had uh, information that you were. Yeah. And so doing that helped fill in the gaps and that's always a good thing. And talking with other people who were there that day, uh, you know, having coffee with them, you know, stopping by the firehouse on a regular part, regular routine and having dinner with the crew helped put some of those pieces together. Um, and, and so that was a good thing. Another thing that got uh, me really curious, um, shortly after the fire, well, I wouldn't say shortly, about five months later, I hired a life coach for the first time in my life. I knew I was going to retire at the end of 2016, and I felt totally stuck in a rut, so I hired a life coach. And I'm glad I did that because I learned a lot of tools and techniques that helped me stay uh, somewhat uh, effective at work. Basically glossed over uh, my declining ability to function uh, because I had all these tools and I was using them. And once I retired and had done enough recovery, and I got curious about what was in that coaching program that helped me so much. And to help me, it would help other people. And I had the opportunity to go get certified in that process, which is why I'm a high performance coach now, which has a lot of basis in positive psychology, it has a lot of basis in developing habits to live a good life. 
Um, and so I was trying to blend the two things of what I know about post-traumatic stress and what I know from the coaching. You know, I also am a peer volunteer at a retreat for first responders with PTSD. The things I learned working as a peer several times a year all kind of congealed into this one mass of a book of things that I know from trial and error that I know will help people so they, they don't have to go through months of trial and error. Let's just cut to the chase and here's some tools that will help you now. If you don't have access to therapy, here are some tools that will help you now. Um, you know, because finding access to therapy is hard in this country. A lot of health insurance doesn't cover it right. or people that live in rural areas have even less options available than people who live in a big city. Um, so it's a starting point for somebody with PTS or if they suspect they have PTS or if they think it's um, a coworker or a spouse, you can go through the book and especially through my journal entries and start seeing how different symptoms show up, whether it's the anger or the anxiety or the rumination, um, the sleep disruptions. And there's even a section in the book where right at the beginning you say, hey, grab a highlighter. And as you go through this book, start highlighting things that sound familiar to you. And there's a place in the back you can write that all together and just take the book with you to go see your doctor. And, and it's like, these are the things that are happening to me. And it creates an opening to have a conversation with a medical professional that may be able to get you pointed in the right direction. Um, the last section is a whole bunch of coaching, you know, journal exercises, uh, things to help you get on a good path of recovery, where it's having three words that remind you every day of who you are, truly are. For me, that was a big thing because I knew I was a good person. And when I wasn't acting like a good person, I would catch myself. Oh, that's not what good people do. So stop doing that and get back over here, stay in my lane. And so that helped me. So I put things like that in the book. There's a list of resources in there, you know, different podcasts. And there are a lot of podcasts that focus on PTS. There are um, a handful of retreats that help first responders that help the military uh, with PTS. There's a lot of things. Uh, one of the other things excuse me, that I've found since the book came out and some of the feedback I'm getting, uh, retirees are finding, um, because like when I started in 1980, uh, post-traumatic stress had just come out as a term, and everybody to this day thinks that it is only something that combat veterans can get, which is not true. You can be in a car accident and end up with post-traumatic stress. You can be sexually assaulted and end up, with post-traumatic stress, long-term child abuse. We call that complex post-traumatic stress because it really gets down into the, <coughs> excuse me, it gets down into the core of who you are and where you think you're worthy or not um, and a whole level of self-worth. But there are a lot of different ways of getting post-traumatic stress. And, and that's one of the things, the type of conversations I'm having with people since the book came out. Um, 
you know, I went to a book uh, event up in uh, Montreal last year and some of the other authors that were there um, had really wonderful conversations around it uh, because of all the different ways of how, how you can get that type of stress response in your body. And uh, it was very enlightening that there was somebody from the military. Um, excuse me, I'm losing my voice today, but up there in Canada, uh, that, uh, you know, part of the lesbian and gay community and the Canadian um, military for a while was purging those people out. And that level of stress gave some of those people post-traumatic stress. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different things out there. And it's just a great way to start the conversation around post-traumatic stress is the book. And um, just the feedback I still get to this day of how much it's helping people. Um, somebody in England posted a picture of my book in front of Windsor Castle, right? And uh, so oh, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Linda, this is, uh, this is wonderful. Congratulations on, on the book. Congratulations on helping people. I think that's the main thing here is uh, you went through your own situation uh, and then found all these tools that you're now helping others with. How do people reach you if they are interested in your services? Uh, they can go to my website, uh, www.encouragegreen.com and go to the contact tab and uh, there's a place where you can email me a message. Excellent. And what about the book? Is it available on Amazon? It's on Amazon. Yes, it is. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about the book, you can also go to my website and go on the book uh, tab. And I explain a little bit more about the book and why I wrote it. And uh, if you click on the link in on that page, it'll take you straight to the sales page on Amazon. Great. Well, Linda, one last question before I let you go. I ask every guest. And at the end of the day, when your work here on earth is done, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to leave behind? I want my legacy to be that I've learned the depth of the human condition and it's part of my goal is to help people find that same level of depth and joy in their life. And if I can help a lot of people do that between now and the time my days are done, then it's been a good life. Linda Green, welcome to the American Real family. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Roger. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we can help reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv.
And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me and podcast your passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.